Welcome to Unpacking Impact, a podcast that explores how rapid digital transformation shapes economics, culture, jobs, policy, and of course, you. Each episode, we speak with thought leaders that are playing and changing the game at the highest levels. Matt Pottinger served as Deputy National Security Advisor, a U.S. Marine in Iraq and Afghanistan, and was a reporter in China for seven years. We discuss Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the new Cold War, and why our response to China has significant repercussions for what happens between China and Taiwan. I'm Naveen Tukaram. I'm Andrew Schwartz. Let's begin. Well, Matt, first of all, thanks so much with everything happening in the world for being on the podcast. Oh, it's great to be with you. That's why we're doing it. We're at a paradigm shift or maybe many paradigm shifts right now in the world. So it's great to see you again. Good to see you too. And I think given your rich experience as a reporter in China, also a U.S. Marine, you bring a real depth of experience to all these issues. Maybe you could tell us how you became Deputy National Security Advisor and how your experiences, both reporting in China and as a combat veteran, as a Marine, how those impacted your experience in the White House. Sure. Yeah. It was uh, a lot of freak accidents and coincidences that led to my working at the White House and the National Security Council staff. If there's one thread that is consistent through all the things that I've done in my adult life, it's been writing. Not always well, but (laughs) nonetheless, trying to write and trying to communicate through writing as a journalist for the years that I covered China in the 1990s for the Reuters news agency, and then for another half a decade for the Wall Street Journal. I joined the Marine Corps in my early 30s. I wanted to contribute to our national security directly rather than just observing it from afar or from the sidelines. And I ended up becoming an intelligence officer and writing was an important part, even you know out with rifle battalions in Anbar province and working with the special purpose Marine Air Ground Task Force in uh, Southern Afghanistan and Helmand province. I was writing and capturing lessons learned and a lot of those lessons learned traveled around. And it was through that writing that I ended up getting selected to go straight back to Afghanistan for a third deployment to work for General Stanley McChrystal and his J-2, who at the time was Major General Mike Flynn. And we wrote, again, we wrote a, a report about how the intelligence system was failing to adapt to the nature of the conflict that we found ourselves in, which was a counterinsurgency. We were fighting an insurgency, but we were still using a lot of the structures and habits and allocating resources as if we were in a conventional fight. And so we wrote a really an investigative report into those problems, along with a series of recommendations on how to fix that. That was called Fixing Intel. It was published by the Center for New American Security and really led in some ways to Mike Flynn's elevation to become head of the DIA. I ended up getting out of active duty in the military, but then was asked to come back to meet then-President-elect Trump to talk to him about North Korea and China following the 2016 election. And that's how I ended up in the White House. I mean, with all that experience, I'm just chomping at a bit to get your take on what's happening in Ukraine, because even some of the smartest foreign policy people in D.C. that I know were pretty shocked by the invasion of Ukraine. Can you give our audience a sense of how this conflict evolved? Because I think a lot of folks were very surprised to open The Wall Street Journal that day and find out what happened. Yeah, no, I think there's some important lessons there for all of us. I wasn't sure if he was going to invade 
when he actually did, my view had been that it would have been to Russia's advantage to use a different approach. And the fact of the matter is, it, is that's probably still true. <laughs> you know, I mean, if it looks as though Russia has done something against its national interest, that's because it has done something gravely against its national interest. What we always have to be humble about is that when you're talking about dictatorships and dictators, it ultimately only matters what they believe and think and how they act. If you go back and really look at the case that Vladimir Putin laid out over the years at the Munich Security Conference well over a decade ago, some of the essays that he's published, it kind of lays it all out. It lays out his intentions. And so the lesson there is to pay extremely close attention to what dictators are saying and not just what they're saying when they're speaking to an audience at Davos, to you know a bunch of foreigners, but what they're saying inside their inner sanctums of power. For example, when Xi Jinping is speaking to the Central Committee of the Communist Party, those speeches should get far more weight than they currently get in intelligence analysis and in open source financial and pencil press news accounts. The thing that should worry us all is that I think Xi Jinping has laid out a case for annexing Taiwan and using force to do it. So we should not be shocked if that's the direction that he chooses to go on Taiwan. We need to be acting now to make that a very unappetizing prospect for Xi Jinping. Yeah, I definitely want to get to our China strategy with respect to Taiwan. And I also want to talk about what is Putin's endgame here, in your opinion? And then we can work backwards into what's happening on the ground right now. Yeah, I mean, he's really in a bad spot. His original end game was to take over the capital, depose or kill the leader of Ukraine, the, the elected leader, to install a puppet government, expand control of the eastern part of the country, and have someone else in place in government that he would feel comfortable with governing the rest of Ukraine. And he thought he could do that in a matter of days, right? I mean, we're reading stories about how Russian troops didn't even know that they were on the verge of an invasion, that they only had three days worth of rations packed. You know, they thought that this was going to be easy, which is a very common mistake leaders make, leaders of all stripes, democratically elected and self-anointed dictators alike make this mistake. They think wars are going to be decisive and quick and, and are going to go according to plan. So his end game has been upended. It looks now like he's turning to some messy kind of plan B, which is to try to turn cities to rubble, or at least parts of cities to rubble. I mean, some cities have been absolutely devastated already from indirect fire by artillery and rockets and aircraft dropping bombs. And it's sort of this, you know, if I can't have it, no one can, right? Render it unlivable and hope that the terror bombing, which is really what it is, it's really equivalent to what the Nazis were doing over London, will somehow force a proud people to capitulate, which I don't think they will. I think that the Ukrainians have demonstrated that will is the single most important factor in any war, and they're showing it in spades. I talked to someone yesterday who was just on the border, you know, stepped inside of Ukraine, helping a group called Samaritan's Purse, which is doing really good charitable work trying to help refugees who are pouring out. And he said that he knew that women and children were streaming out of Ukraine, but to actually be there and to see it was a profoundly moving experience. And he said he didn't imagine ever seeing these images except in black and white. But here we are. We are seeing some version of the Korean War playing out again. In a sense, I think we're seeing a hot war that is really the opening salvo of a new Cold War, just as the Korean War was for the first Cold War, Ukraine is for our second Cold War. 
How would you compare what's happening right now to what the Nazis did in the late 30s? You know, there's so many parallels and and so many ironies, right? I mean, one of the stated goals of Vladimir Putin is to denazify Ukraine. And this is a country that he claims is part of Russia historically. And, you know, Russian and Ukraine share cultural affinity with one another. Yet you have an elected Jewish president of Ukraine whose family has a history of having been victimized by the Nazis in the 30s and 40s. It's really crazy stuff. It's preposterous. It just forces you to start to confront the worldview of Vladimir Putin and all of the distortions that it includes and all of the bad information that has fed into his assumptions. How would you judge the U.S. response so far? Well, I think the Biden administration should be commended for their skillful use of intelligence, both in the run-up to the war, when a lot of people thought that it was highly unlikely that Putin would actually invade. President Biden was saying, no, he's going to do it. (laughs) And we've got the intelligence to back that up. You know, he sounded like Chicken Little there for a little bit, but all of it bore out and it showed that our intelligence community has done itself a credit in the lead up to the war, but also in highlighting all of these false flag types of ploys that Vladimir Putin has been attempting. In launching the war, he wanted to make it seem as though the war was started by the Ukraine government. And we were able to sort of inoculate people against that disinformation, against that confusion to dispel some of the fog of war before the war began. And we're seeing that again with respect to the threats and disinformation that both China and Russia are coordinating to suggest that the United States is running biological warfare labs in Ukraine. The White House has done a good job making use of intelligence to say this may be another disinformation false flag ploy that is going to presage the use of weapons of mass destruction by Vladimir Putin. The Biden administration has done a good job of helping rally the West. And this has been a galvanizing moment. Putin gets a lot of the credit for galvanizing the West, but nonetheless, the work that the administration had done in advance in sort of drawing up sanctions, menus of options and so forth was very, very important. It's going to be highly relevant in the Taiwan context as well. If Beijing decides to go after Taiwan, you're going to hear a loud ripping sound from the heavens. That will be the sound of the West and China rupturing their relationship and really a deep, permanent kind of decoupling taking place. We certainly hope that Xi Jinping thinks three times, as the Chinese saying goes, before he takes the fateful step of risking a world war by annexing his democratic neighbor in Taiwan. And do you think that the United States and NATO's response to Putin is a warning to China on doing just that? Well, in terms of economic punishment and sanctions, it is. In terms of military support and really military will, it might be more of a negative advertisement only because we've gone too far in saying what we will not do. That would be just one critique that I have of the White House right now is, you know, be a little more ambiguous about these things. Even if you're if even if you're not going to send troops into harm's way, be a little bit less helpful to Vladimir Putin by giving him all of the parameters and all of our thinking up front which he is using to his advantage in prosecuting this horrific bombing and artillery campaign against Ukrainian civilians. So a little more ambiguity, I think a little more aggression in getting more capabilities earlier into the hands of Ukrainian fighters who need that work. We really also want to avoid drifting into a sort of complacency that might include getting comfortable with the idea of a long-term frozen conflict. That's not in our interest strategically. It's certainly not in the interest or moral interest of anybody at a time when innocent people are being killed. We should be looking to help Ukraine win 
quickly and decisively because the longer the war goes on, the harder it is to resolve and to achieve a ceasefire later. Historians have pointed that out. Neil Ferguson's been writing about this. So go for a decisive win. Go for victory. That doesn't mean necessarily getting troops from the United States into direct conflict, but there are a lot of things between what we're doing now and between a direct head-to-head conflict that we can still do. What would be your next suggestion along those lines to President Biden, since you've spent a lot of time advising the prior president? Well, how about giving the Ukrainians the capability to destroy those long-range fires that are coming down, raining down on their cities, destroying children's hospitals and the like, giving them the means through air, electronic warfare means, drones, the ability to sort of reach out and touch those artillery and rocket batteries so that Putin's troops can't believe that they're safe as they rain down terror on civilians. And why haven't we done that? Or why hasn't Europe provided some of those weapons if they can? I don't know. I mean, right now, President Biden has just spent time with NATO and they've had meetings behind closed doors. Hopefully there's more activity that will follow in terms of getting more weaponry out of the arsenals of NATO allies and into the hands of the brave men and women who are actually fighting to uphold the principle of sovereignty, if nothing else. And the common denominator, the reason that you had most of the world condemning Vladimir Putin in those votes is because everyone recognizes the principle of sovereignty that is now at risk, that has now been grossly violated and will remain at risk if Vladimir Putin is able to achieve his goals uh, in Ukraine. What do you think Putin's cyber strategy is with regards to Ukraine? And on top of that, you know, what can we expect in the United States in terms of any sort of cyber warfare as we presumably get more involved in this conflict? President Biden put out a statement the other day warning that knowing the Russian playbook as we do, we should anticipate cyber attacks on the United States and on our allies. So far, it's sort of been the dog that didn't bark. I wouldn't be surprised if they do attempt something stupid. If they do, we'll learn from it, we'll adapt, and it will be less of a useful tool for Putin going forward. And it hopefully will also help us harden our infrastructure and our digital environment as a dress rehearsal for conflict against China over Taiwan. What we're talking about is the possibility for a Taiwan conflict that would be even more devastating to our interest, China's interests, more devastating to the global economy and finance, but nonetheless, something that we really, really need to be preparing for quickly. There are clips going around on social media about Russian TV segments where they're talking about nuking Poland, they're talking about invading Sweden, the island of Gotland. Is this just fear-mongering and saber-rattling, or is this part of a wishful strategy if they're successful? No, I don't know. We don't know. Putin's own people and even some of his close advisors don't know what he's going to do next. It's clear that probably there are only the number of people you could count on one hand who were sort of in the know about the fateful late February invasion of Ukraine. Part of it might be his attempt to seek psychological effect, to trial balloon some of these ideas. It might be real things that he's attempting to do. I was heartened to read that the White House has set up uh, what it calls a tiger team to start doing tabletop exercises. Hopefully, they're including uh, people from the Treasury Department and as well as from DOD and the intelligence community and so forth to start piecing together alliance-wide responses and options to respond if Putin decides to expand the war horizontally to include, for example, NATO allies or other partners that are not NATO allies, or if he decides to expand it vertically by going up the escalation ladder to use chemical and other weapons of mass destruction. 
Yeah, it seems like what everyone's worried about, and rightfully so, is not escalating this into a nuclear conflict. What would have to happen for that very poor outcome to occur? Well, I mean, Vladimir Putin has exposed his conventional capability as being far less than met the eye. You study order of battle charts, you look at the kinds of equipment and statistics that describe a military capability, but then when you see it break its teeth on a far less well-equipped but vigorous and patriotic set of freedom fighters fighting for their homeland, that's a pretty powerful piece of information that's gone out around the world. It has shown that Russian military might in the conventional realm is far less impressive than what we thought. And that's going to have long-term dark consequences for Russia and for its security and probably even its ability to maintain its integrity. The nukes are one area where they're not a paper tiger. They've got the largest nuclear weapons arsenal in the world. They've got a huge arsenal of so-called tactical nukes, which is an oxymoron if I've ever heard one. But what it means is nukes that can be used to wipe out parts of a city rather than you know to flatten an entire city, to take out naval formations, uh, troop formations, and the like. If he does that, I don't want to say too much other than I don't think that Vladimir Putin will survive that. Do you think that the U.S. and NATO should close the skies above Ukraine? And if so, how would that actually occur? I think that giving Ukraine the means to contest the skies would be a good starting point, as opposed to having U.S. aircraft or NATO aircraft patrolling Ukraine skies. When you do talk about a no-fly zone, and we remember this from all the years that we had imposed no-fly zones over northern and southern Iraq, for example, that requires the use of force to remove radars and missile systems and threats. It's not just about escorting other aircraft out of airspace. It does raise the possibility of a head-on confrontation, but there are things that we can do to help the Ukrainians better clear the skies. All the Stinger missiles that they're using, which work well against helicopters and low-flying fixed-wing aircraft. What about capabilities designed to help them reach a little higher up into the sky to hit some of those bombers that are blowing up city blocks down below? What about giving them access to radar, intelligence that is generated from our radar systems, from some of our own Patriot batteries and things like that across borders? Those are the sorts of things that can make a difference that would be less likely to risk a head-on confrontation. All those seem like a no-brainer to me, so let's hope that with Biden's recent meeting with NATO leaders that they can come up with a little more aggressive strategy, even though, like you mentioned, they've done so far a pretty good job in assessing the situation on the ground and responding very quickly in a galvanized fashion, but there's clearly a lot more to do. Let's switch a little bit to what's happening in China, because it would seem that they're watching this very closely in terms of the US and NATO's response to Russia, as you mentioned before. How would you advise the president to position the US and US allies vis-a-vis -vis a potential China-Taiwan conflict? If you look at what China is doing, they're trying to say Taiwan has nothing to do with Ukraine because Ukraine was a sovereign country and Taiwan is a province of China. They're working overtime, Chinese diplomats, to try to force people to change their language, change the way they talk about Taiwan, trying to get UN organizations to stop even using the word Taiwan unless it's followed by the parenthetical province of China. What they're trying to do is inoculate themselves from any obligations under the UN charter by saying, look, this is an internal matter. I think what the West needs to be doing, the West writ large, and I'm not referring to the West in a geographic sense, I'm talking about rule of law 
societies the world over, many of which are close to China, like South Korea and Japan and Taiwan itself, for that matter. What countries need to be doing is preparing a plan that would make clear to China that if they take military action against Taiwan, that would be tantamount to a declaration of independence for Taiwan. In other words, China would be declaring Taiwan's independence, not Taiwan, not us, not anyone else, but that that would be a tripwire that would demonstrate, by definition, if you are using the force of arms against a people and a government, they are by definition an independent and sovereign entity. And so we would use their own forward momentum against them in that sense. And they would face all the same opprobrium, the same problems at the UN, NATO allies would rally with the United States to back far more devastating sanctions than even have been visited on Russia, just by virtue of the fact that China is so much more integrated into the world economy. That's going to hurt everybody, but the West is going to be willing to do it because the alternative is allowing China to basically redraw maps, threaten Japan directly, threaten South Korea. China is already trying to threaten Australia, not only with its coercive trade blackmail, but now they're trying to buy off corrupt leaders all over the Pacific Islands region and establish a military presence that almost mimics like tracing paper, the Japanese imperial Japanese strategy for the Pacific at the outset of World War II. We're not going to stand for that. We're not going to tolerate it. We're not going to watch China gobble up countries in the Western Pacific and rewrite the rules to support totalitarian empire. We will fight. And I think others will fight alongside us. It was pretty disturbing news about the genocide that has been occurring in China over the last, I'm not even sure how long. But can you talk a little bit about that? Because it didn't seem like there was much that outsiders could really do about it. Yeah, well, what's incredible about the Uyghur genocide is how far along China got before people around the world really started to believe the things that we were saying when when we were in office in 2017, 2018, 2019, trying to alert allies, trying to alert the press. The press is caught up, fortunately. It took a couple years, but the press is caught up to what we knew at the time was a gulag of concentration camps that were designed to reprogram people to no longer recognize their parents, their heritage, their language, their religion, to the extent that people had religious faith. We're watching history repeat itself. Beijing, ultimately, the weight of evidence forced it to change tack several times. First, it just denied that there was anything of the sort. And then they said, oh, you mean those vocational training schools that we've got? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's just, we're just teaching some people Mandarin. It's all voluntary. It's great. Don't mind the barbed wire. It was really the work of a small number of cyber sleuths, just smart, dedicated researchers, people like Adrian Zenz, but others as well, who were able to find the digital trail, the exhaust trail that led to this devastating picture of what's taking place there. The Trump administration was the first administration in the world to impose sanctions on China and on specific Chinese officials. It was the first administration in the world to declare this a genocide. It was the first administration in the world to stop importing goods that we suspected, strongly suspected, were benefiting from forced labor. That included 13 tons of human hair, which almost certainly was shaved from the heads of Uyghur slaves and prisoners. 13 tons of human hair, by the way, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of heads of hair that were shaved to create wigs, to make hair weaves and wigs. And that was shipped to the United States and Customs and Border Patrol stopped that at the border and hasn't allowed that kind of stuff to come in anymore. 
Others have gradually followed suit. The UK Parliament, the Netherlands, Canada, and others have declared this for what it is, which is certainly crimes against humanity and arguably a genocide as well. Let's try to end on a high note here, even though we've been talking about some pretty dark issues. What gives you hope for a positive outcome from all this? Look, there already is a positive outcome that I think is really, really important and and needs to be talked about more. And that is the West. Again, this idea of the West, which is countries that respect sovereignty, that enjoy the rule of law, enjoy those sorts of institutions that have made them secure and prosperous, whether we're talking about Japan and South Korea in the Western Pacific, or we're talking about all of our NATO allies and Canada and the United States here in North America. The predictions about a multipolar world, the predictions about the demise of the West, the self-flagellation by people within Western civilization, flagellating themselves over the crimes of Western civilization. Look, I mean, the West, it's not just that it's back. It never went away. We're more powerful than Russia and China combined. We're more powerful in terms of our technology, our economic heft, in terms of our ideas, in terms of our military might. So we should really be heartened by the fact that even though we didn't choose this Cold War, it was forced on us by Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, we're going to win it. We're going to win it. We should have enormous confidence in that ultimate outcome. And it may not require decades. It may happen a lot quicker than people think because the nature of the mistakes and miscalculations that Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin are making to undermine their own economies, their own societies, and ultimately their own rule, those things are happening pretty darn fast right now. We should have enormous confidence. And I think that is an optimistic note to end on. Well, that is a great note to end on. Matt, thanks so much for your time. And thank you for your service, both in the Marines and as part of the administration and everything you're doing today to help influence what's happening around the world. Thanks for everything you're doing and enjoy your podcast. And I look forward to getting together again sometime soon. Absolutely. If you enjoy this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.